Bodybuilding Dietitians podcast. Thank you so much for joining us today for what is now episode 152. And as always, you are joined by your hosts, Tiara and Jack. Now, once again, we do have a Q&A episode lined up for you. And starting off with this first question, it says, do all protein feedings during the day equally contribute to muscle growth? Yeah, I think this is the first time we've ever been asked a question like this which uh, considering been podcasting for... Well over three years now. Mm, it's uh, impressive. Yeah. And <laughs> thought in- we'd been asked them all. <laughs> interesting also that we've never really thought about this. It is quite an acute question. Like they're looking at protein in a very acute setting, like mm-hmm. which exact protein feeding throughout the day is the most important for muscle growth. Yeah. Meal two or meal three? Which one's more anabolic, Jack? Mm. <laughs> and yeah, it's... I'm going to try and break it down a little bit because I think there's different protein feedings throughout the day, which are very important. And I don't think we can really narrow down on one specifically that is the most important because they're important for different reasons. And I guess a lot of people might sort of jump straight away to, oh, surely it's got to be your post-workout protein because that's your synthesizing proteins after training. Like surely that's the most important. And I mean, the honest answer is I don't know. Like, I don't know which protein feeding correlates to the most uh, muscle mass gained because something like that, I don't even know you'd, how you would do a, a research investigation on that. Um, <laughs> because as we know, muscle protein synthesis, it's not just spiked for the one hour after mm. you do your last leg curl. It's spiked for anywhere between 24 to sometimes 72 hours post-training. Mm. Yeah, and... Like we'll kind of examine a few different protein feedings, but I think what a lot of people might not think about is what about when you wake up your first meal of the day, ideally you have protein in there. That's a protein feeding. And arguably that's a really important protein feeding because you've been fasting for, I don't know, sometimes up to 12 hours Mm -hmm. uh, since last consuming food. And therefore that's your first spike in muscle protein synthesis for an extended period of time. Yeah, and there is research to suggest that those who actually start off their day with a large bolus of protein, so for example, starting off your first meal, breakfast time, having at least 40 grams of protein compared to maybe 10 or 15 grams in your breakfast, long-term that does show to have more favorable body composition outcomes. Obviously that's multifactorial, of course, because mm. we know protein's very satiating. And if you're starting off the day with a very satiating meal, you're probably less likely to overconsume calories later in the day as well. And those who generally have a high protein intake, I would say, they usually have other lifestyle factors at play as well. They're usually quite conscious of, you know, lifting weights, staying relatively active, getting a quality sleep, everything else that would dictate body composition. (laughs) Yeah, undoubtedly. And I guess on the flip side of that, we also have to think about the final protein feeding as well. So obviously your final protein feeding will be then proceeded by an extended period of fasting while you're asleep. Mm -hmm. So that's arguably very important. It's your final spike in muscle protein synthesis. So when we kind of, and let's say you have four protein feedings a day, which we both have four, then that's already half of our protein feedings covered. And then the the remainder of the two protein feedings will be between breakfast and dinner. Mm -hmm. Exactly right. Because you'd hope you're sleeping throughout the night. (laughs) Yeah. 
Gorna, well, I'm sure there's many people who still wake up to have a protein shake, but we certainly don't advocate for that. I remember hearing a story said by Jeff Nippard talking about how when he would actually wake up in the night to pee, he would have like a can of tuna near the toilet wow. and he would eat a can of tuna in the middle of the night and then fall back asleep. I can't even fathom doing mm. something like that, man. Yeah, it's, um, I feel sorry for his partner at the time. <laughs> cracking open cans of tuna in the early hours of the morning gosh gosh anyway back to the question i think that we can conclusively say that there is no one time of the day that is the most anabolic and that will dictate how much muscle mass you grow Mm. depending on how much protein that you eat that's looking at it from a very narrow lens like you really have to look at it from a bird's eye view and over a chronic time period and what you're doing consistently throughout the day each day of each week of each month of each year that's really going to help dictate what your body composition looks like and how much muscle mass you have Mm. i mean we're even talking about the minutiae there in in terms of protein feedings itself like the most important variable about protein is your daily protein intake and Mm. being consistent and then i would say second to that would be the quality of protein consumed so ideally getting in complete sources of protein and then i would probably say third to that would be then your distribution of protein which is the protein feedings Mm -hmm. and i guess to break it down with some numbers there so aiming for at least 1.6 to 2.2 grams per kilogram of body weight per day of protein you certainly can exceed that but why i wouldn't necessarily recommend going below that mm. intake like the rdi for protein is 0.8 of a gram per kilogram of body weight per day that for me would be around like 60 grams mm. of protein per day or so like boy sometimes i get that in a meal you know what i mean <laughs> yeah it's very very low <laughs> yes but i'd say for some easy math for most people just go for around that two gram per kilogram of body weight per day mark and then what you want to do is distribute that fairly evenly across your meals and suggest that you eat at least four times during the day with a good protein bolus between each one of those meals. And then within those meals, you wanna be aiming for between 0.4 to 0.55 grams per kilogram of body weight of a protein source from a high biological value protein source. So essentially an animal source within each one of those meals. So for example, if someone was 100 kilograms, that would be between 40 to 55 grams of protein coming from something like some chicken, some whey protein, some red meat, some high protein yogurt, you name it. Or if you're 50 kilograms, that would be between 20 to 27 grams of a high biological value protein source within each of those meals. And then obviously within a meal, you're not usually just solely eating protein. You're going to get other macronutrients too. So the total amount of protein within one of those meals is probably going to exceed that number of grams because you get trace proteins from things like your grains and your vegetables and your fruit and your nuts. Basically everything has a little bit of protein in it. Mm. Yeah, it does. And that's why some people who are on higher amounts of carbohydrate or dietary fat intake might need to go towards the upper end of that protein range because they'll consume a lot of trace protein through extra carbohydrates or trace protein through their dietary fat sources as well especially if you have a very whole foods biased diet typically your whole grains are going to contain more protein than your refined grains Mm -hmm. absolutely like i know you're in that position aren't you like you're probably consuming over three grams per kilogram of body weight of protein 
Yeah, I am. Yep. And that's because, yeah, my carbs are 575 at the moment, fats are 80. So, and I, it's not just because of that. Like one, I like the ease of just having more protein, which means I don't have to worry too much about restricting my protein sources i can just Mm. say okay i want this much protein at each meal i don't have to play tetris on my fitness pal in order to get it i have the luxury of being on a very high calorie intake which uh means i have a lot of leeway yeah protein's good stuff man and there's absolutely nothing wrong with exceeding that two gram per kilogram of body weight mark only if it doesn't restrict your carbohydrate or dietary fat intake Mm, absolutely yeah you're not feeling too satiated i know with a lot of my clients i'm always very conscious of that if their carbohydrate intake is really ramping up so for example you might start someone on 140 grams of protein per day but over the period of time their carbohydrates ramp up from like 250 grams upwards of 400 grams and that extra 150 grams if you are getting that through a whole bunch of grains and more vegetables and you name it but you're keeping your protein target at 140 grams per day then obviously all of those extra trace sources of protein that you're getting through those carbohydrate sources you're probably going to have to reduce your animal sources of protein and you might get to the point where someone's only having 100 grams of high protein yogurt rather than 200 in a meal and then you could make the argument well you're not quite meeting your leucine threshold there so when someone's carbohydrates are going up quite exponentially i usually allocate like okay let's just also with that add on an additional like 10 grams 20 grams worth of protein yeah so it's always something to keep in mind but hopefully we uh answered that question for you all right this next one jack we haven't been asked this one either before Full of new questions today. Are fiber supplements okay when you're on low calories? For example, Metamucil, Benafiber, and Fiber gummies. Yeah, well, arguably fiber supplements might be more necessary when you are on lower calories because you have less opportunity to consume adequate dietary fiber compared to being on more calories or more carbohydrates when you have the luxury of consuming more grains and more vegetables or starchy vegetables which are higher in dietary fiber so i guess you could make that argument but there's also the argument that if you are on lower calories or in a deficit you should be prioritizing whole foods anyway because you have less of a window for meeting your micronutrient target so even if someone is consuming 1500 calories it should be quite achievable for them to still consume the required amount of dietary fiber which is 25 grams per day for females and 30 grams for males as a Mm. minimum yeah certainly it's just about being strategic with your food choices Mm. for sure i i know that's certainly achievable i think when i'm on like 1500 calories in the depths of a prep my fibers intake still usually around 40 to 50 grams per day and that's without any fiber supplements Mm. that's just consuming a lot of whole grains fruits and vegetables Hey guys, just a reminder that we post regular informative content on both our Instagram and YouTube channel. So make sure to go over to those platforms and search The Bodybuilding Dietitians. See you there. Yeah, and I think in the past or like throughout uni, we might have been taught if your dietary intake is adequate, you don't need fiber supplements. But I think now I'm a little bit more open to it. I think that's the benefit of working with clientele is that someone wants to take a fiber supplement don't really care that much Mm. like i i will make sure that their dietary intake is good and that their diet is nutritious because we don't want to just whack a band-aid of fiber supplement over over poor diet quality 
But if someone wants to add in a fiber supplement on top of that, I'll say, I'll give them the honest answer, which is, hey, it's probably not going to change anything if your diet's already adequate. But if you want to do it, go for it. Mm. And I would say that the only benefit of a fiber supplement or one of the few benefits, if your dietary intake is already adequate, some fiber supplements are quite good in the sense that they do contain a few different types of dietary fiber. Mm -hmm. So the ones that were listed in the question, like Benefiber and Metamucil, they're two also really common uh, fiber supplement types. Like when you go to Woolies or Coles or your supermarket or chemist, it's going to be like Benefiber, Metamucil and a couple of other ones. But those two ones, they only contain like one strain of dietary fiber from my knowledge. Like Metamucil contains, uh, what was it again? Yeah, so Metamucil, it's basically made up from phylum husk, yeah. which you can also just buy pure phylum husk mm. if you wanted to as well. But Metamucil itself, it also has some maltodextrin, which is a type of carbohydrate. So mm. probably it has, give it no, that... has no fiber in maltodextrin. <laughs> no, <laughs> like that's, that's actually a caloric source of carbohydrate. Like yeah. it's not even an artificial sweetener in maltodextrin. It's what you have in your workout for the fast-acting sugars yeah exactly right but definitely don't go having metamucil intra workout <laughs> you, you might run to the bathroom um but it also has like ci some citric acid probably just to help preserve it some mm. natural and artificial flavors and some aspartame which is a type of artificial sweetener but the, the thing to i think clarify is that fiber supplements they aren't calorie free they still contain energy because per gram of fiber, you're still gonna get between one to three calories, mm. even though our body, it doesn't actually have the enzymes that are capable of breaking down the bonds within fiber in the small intestine to then extract energy from it. What actually happens is that fiber passes into your large bowel and then it's fermented by the gut bacteria in there. And then you that gut bacteria can actually harvest energy from the fiber. But it's important to recognize that these things aren't calorie free. So for example, for a serving of Metamucil, which on the packet says 12 grams, you're still gonna get 10 grams of carbs from that. Six grams of that is fiber. So that means the other four grams is probably the maltodextrin to give it some sweet flavor. And that still has 30 calories in it. And Benefiber, which is just one other type of fiber, it's wheat dextrin, a four gram serving of that, four grams of carbs, three grams of fiber, that has 15 calories. So if you are consuming these things, I would still recommend probably tracking them. And that's probably the thing in my fitness pal, Jack, is that if people are tracking things like fiber supplements, it'll obviously add to their total fiber intake for the day. It'll also add to the calories but it won't add to their macros for their carbs, protein, mm. and fat. So if you were consuming a copious amount of these things in your MyFitnessPal, that might be why there's a discrepancy of 100, 150 calories or something like that. But you're like, oh, but it says that I'm exceeding my calorie target, but I'm hitting my macros. Mm. That could potentially be it because fiber well, does have some it, just calories. Just like sugar alcohols, I would count it as carbs personally. Mm. Or we know that with fiber, I'd say just give yourself a range. So for example, we know that with all of your fruits and vegetables and your grains, your nuts, your seeds, your pulses, you're getting grams of fiber from those too. And here in Australia, they don't count the grams of fiber within the carbohydrate value, but obviously we know it still has some calories in it. So I'd say that just make sure that your fiber intake per day is staying within a range of like maybe five or 10 grams. 
rather than swinging the pendulum some days you have 25 grams some days you have 50 because an extra 25 grams of fiber times three that's an extra 75 calories you know someone in the depths of a prep on a very low calorie intake that could be a macro cut for them 75 calories per mm. day sort of thing so you don't want to be able to cancel that out but just to put it in perspective like you could eat food as well probably for the same energy intake so for example if that four gram serving of benefiber that you might stir into some water and drink has around 15 calories in it what you could eat instead perhaps could be 100 grams of strawberries which would only have 12 calories in it you'd still get four grams of carbs and 2.5 grams of those carbs are fiber yeah it's it's definitely a viable option mm -hmm. and the downside of those particular supplements as you kind of explained they only contain one source of dietary fiber when one of the best things about dietary fiber is the variety and type fiber types that we consume so whether it's not just soluble insoluble and resistant starch but also where does that fiber come from so obviously the benefiber fiber was purely wheat based mm -hmm. but what if you found a fiber supplement that contain some wheat fiber or fiber derived from wheat or and corn and maybe oats and psyllium husk mm -hmm. and maybe different nuts and seeds as well that would be much more beneficial than just consuming one strain of dietary fiber yeah absolutely variety is key and that's why just having a diet with plenty of different plants and plenty of variety that's really going to be the way that you thrive and that kind of comes back to the recommendation to have at least 30 different types of plant sources per week of course for the micronutrient intake but also just for the diversity of fiber types there mm. yeah i have had some clients who have consumed fiber supplements and this is people who of course they already have a good dietary intake and they um, well some of them like just didn't bother telling me which is cool because like it's not necessarily a big deal or it wasn't in their eyes and let's be honest it's not it's just a fiber supplement you're not you're not breaking any laws <laughs> no and yeah lo and behold they actually got more gi distress from having the fiber supplement mm -hmm. because they they shot their fiber intake up by like 15 20 grams through a single dose and uh they were like hey jack in their check-in like i've got some distress going on at the moment uh and then i said okay what's something you've changed recently and they mentioned the fiber supplement it's obviously the thing that's causing the issue yeah so yeah sometimes when when you have your diet is it adequate adding on more just isn't necessarily better mm -hmm. mm. but I'm, I'm i'm sure this person is maybe speaking from a standpoint of they, their dietary fiber isn't sufficient at the moment. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so I'd try your best to first take a food first approach initially and just try to get enough fiber through your fruits and vegetables and everything else. And then if you were to add a fiber supplement on top of that, like you mentioned, I wouldn't go straight in and just go 20 grams, let's go. Probably ease into it like maybe three to five grams per day mm. and then see how you respond for sure. And I can just see how, you know, this could be tempting, particularly now that they, they put like everything in gummy form now. Yeah. <laughs> you can find anything in candy form. Uh, like for example, multivitamins, multivitamin mm. candies and everything else, but fiber gummies, if it says like, you know, high fiber gummies, like low sugar, whatever, I could see how that could be very tempting to eat when you are in a calorie deficit. Cause it's like, woo, you know, low calories, but I can still uh, get my hit. Yeah. That could certainly run into distress as well. Mm. Well, it's the same sort of thing, just like vitamin C where 
they market it as more is better. The high dose vitamin C, like same with dietary fiber, people know it's good. Surely if I have more of it, it's going to be better. Mm. But yeah, that's just not the case. Yeah. Um, there, like Dietary fiber is one of the main signature points of diet quality. Like if you have a high dietary fiber intake and you don't supplement with dietary fiber, it's a f- fairly good chance yeah. that you're going to have a fairly nutritious diet. Yeah. But on the flip side, if you're just eating white bread and white rice and, you know, potato chips, and mm. then you just down 30 grams of fiber per day from Metamucil, ugh, you can't exactly cheat the system like that. I'm sorry. <laughs> yeah, it's not quite that easy. <laughs> no, it's not. Even though technically the numbers would add up on my fitness mm. pal. <laughs> All right, Jack, moving on to this next question. It says... What are the main reasons for fat loss plateaus? Good question. So it's quite multifaceted, as you can imagine. And I think the best way of answering this is looking at what contributes to energy expenditure throughout the day. So we know that calorie deficit is established through two different factors. One, your dietary intake, so eating less calories than you burn, but also your energy expenditure as well. And that's two sides of the equation there. So looking at your energy expenditure throughout the day, because of course, assuming your caloric intake remains consistent in a calorie deficit, or it remains consistent across the week and you're tracking relatively accurately, then we got to look at, okay, what else is changing? Because you could reach a plateau I guess, because you are increasing your food. I'm assuming that's mm-hmm. that remains consistent. So we the three most important factors for energy expenditure is one going to be your basal metabolic rate, which contributes to the most of your daily energy expenditure. So that's basically the energy you expend at complete rest. So mm-hmm. while you're sleeping, for example, the other two factors would be your need. So non-exercise activity thermogenesis. Uh, it's a, quite a complicated term. Well, it sounds complicated. It's very simple. It's basically non-exercise activity. So I think it sounds pretty neat. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so it, that's like cleaning around the house or... Patting your dog. Patting your dog or <laughs> clipping your toenails, maybe. <laughs> and then the final one is exercise itself. So I guess for some people, exercise might actually outweigh needs. Mm. It just really depends on, on who you are and what you do. And if you were like an elite level athlete training for hours and hours during the day, I would almost argue that some people's exercise expenditure might even mm. outweigh their BMR. Yeah, but rare cases. Or, for example, if you're doing a, a week-long hike, like mm. hiking throughout the day, I'm sure would burn mm. more. Ex- I assume that would be exercise rather than neat. But yeah, yeah but you, know, you get the picture. Spending an hour and a half at World's Gym five times a week, probably not quite no. the same as BMR. <laughs> mm. Especially for our listeners, yeah. So we've got to look at what how those variables will change. So uh, the first two variables will definitely change, potentially the third one as well. So variable one being BMR. Sure, many of you have heard of metabolic adaptation. Mm-hmm. So your body will become more efficient over time at expending energy. Mm-hmm. So, for example, your heart rate slows down, your respiratory rate slows down at rest, and therefore your BMR will go down as you lose weight. Mm-hmm. So that's one reason. Uh, reason number two would be through NEAT. So it's very, very common in a calorie deficit for your NEAT to reduce. So like one thing that I find a substantially difference between now and in a prep is like I'll tap my foot, I'll tap my knee. Tierra will see me like swinging on the chair uh, and (laughs) leaning back. (laughs) Even things like how you speak. So do you speak with expression? Like how do you actually project your voice? And also, are you using your hands when you speak? Are you usually Mm. facial expressions? Something I've even noticed as well is 
when you're just standing around, are you willing to actually just rely on your own body to keep you upright? Or are you more inclined to lean up against mm. something? Yeah, true that. Or will you just sit? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and then third is exercise. So like just like we can be more efficient uh, doing neat. We can also be more efficient doing exercise. Like, for example, when we're at the gym, I guess this is more neat, but are we sitting down in between sets or going for a walk mm. or are we being trying to be more efficient in the exercise itself? Like a big one for me throughout prep was my eccentric phases. They, they turned into from two to three seconds to like one or half a second. Like I was just plummeting down and trying to conserve as much energy as possible and making mm. it really rapid uh, rather than doing a controlled eccentric and, and then pushing back up. Mm. Yeah, yeah, so combine all of that. Those are going to be the main reasons as to why you have plateaued mm -hmm. in terms of weight loss and it's really interesting in the literature the way they actually describe there's two different phenotypes right they talk about people with thrifty metabolisms and then they talk about people with spendthrift metabolisms so a thrifty metabolism means that for example if you go into an energy deficit your body will be quite thrifty with its energy expenditure or energy intake as well Essentially, what it means is that you will downregulate a lot of these processes quite quickly. So if you're in an energy deficit, your heart rate might drop quite dramatically. You might start speaking a lot quieter. You might start just not moving as much during the day. And all of those things equivalent to a thrifty metabolism. Some people have a spendthrift metabolism, which means that their body feels pretty comfortable at a certain body weight. And if you keep trying to increase energy intake in order to purposely put on more body weight, their body will fight that. So they will upregulate a lot of these processes. So if you give them an extra 100 calories, they're going to burn an extra 100 calories throughout the day not even intentionally their body's almost just going to subconsciously do it for them mm. so uh it's quite interesting thrifty and spendthrift metabolisms hey guys just a reminder that we offer coaching services which you can find on our website by searching the bodybuilding dietitians on google or via the show notes below we coach anyone with a health and fitness related goal to answer this question jack if i've hit a fat loss plateau because of all of these reasons how can I break through it? How can I keep losing fat? Well, yeah, it's often the answer that people don't want to hear. We don't have magic wands, unfortunately, but you either have to increase the amount of energy expenditure you're conducting or lower your energy intake. So eat less calories or move more. That's basically the answer. Mm -hmm. And that's why weight loss is hard because some people are very metabolically adaptive and especially due to genetic reasons or potentially periods of weight loss in the past uh, or yo-yo dieting, people will find it more difficult to lose weight. There's no doubt that people do lose weight more difficultly than others. Like some people do like to play that card, maybe unnecessarily sometimes, but mm. I've tried everything <laughs> and I just can't budge it off. Mm. But from, I'm sure you can say the same thing. We've worked with hundreds of people now yeah. and some people do lose weight harder than others. Like, mm. And sometimes it will be due to genetic reasons or reasons partially outside their control. But sometimes it will just be lifestyle related. Like they, they don't move as much or they just not as accurate with their tracking. Mm -hmm. So it's very, very multifactorial. Yeah. But ultimately it's about being able to pinpoint a few of the main reasons for what's contributing most to why you've now hit a plateau mm. and why technically you're kind of at a maintenance level right now. And then what you can do in order to break through that.
Mm. And that's why weight loss should always be temporary. Like you should never set a weight loss goal that's indefinite. Mm. If some, if you've got a goal like, oh, I'm just going to lose weight until I feel like it, I, I need to stop. Like that's not a good weight loss goal to have. You need to have fairly short to moderate mm. weight loss goal. Yeah, it's And good. break it up into periods as well. Yeah, without a doubt. It's good to be objective about things. Mm. Great. Well, Jack, one more question for today. It says... Have you ever tried doing Bulgarians with only one dumbbell? Yes, I have. Same. And yeah, it's, I think we can maybe toot our own horn a little bit here. Because the main reason why I don't think it's that good for us is because we would have to use like an 80 kilo dumbbell mm. or something. We're just too strong <laughs> now. <laughs> yeah. I think in the past it could have been worthwhile. Mm. But the last time I did dumbbell Bulgarians, I think it was 40 kilos each hand. And that would mean I would have to use 80 kilos in one hand, which the gym doesn't have an 80 kilo dumbbell. (laughs) Yeah, it's just, it's not practical once you get up Mm. to that point. But personally, I think that starting off with one dumbbell or a kettlebell or just a weight in one hand, it actually helps you get into that Bulgarian movement pattern. And that's actually what I started off with now almost two years ago when we went into our very first lockdown because we had a squat rack here in the dining room and I started doing Bulgarians there. And the great thing was, is that like I would have a dumbbell in just one hand because I could just hold on to the other side of the squat rack just for the stability aspect. So for those who actually really struggle with stabilizing themselves and that balance, but they still really want to do that lunging movement pattern or that Bulgarian movement pattern and be able to overload and not have stability be the limiting factor. I personally think that you could just hold a dumbbell in one hand and just target that quad. But at the same time, I would still be trying to work on your balance in in the background in the meantime, because you don't want to always just be relying on something to hold on to really people should be able to balance with a bulgarian that's one of the awesome things about it i think which is actually mm. really good because it's good to do unilateral movements like that that are challenging and that you have to keep progressing with and force you to get a little bit uncomfortable with your balance i wouldn't just throw in the towel from the get-go and just be like oh, i need to be stabilized the entire time but i think it's good to start off with and then once you get to the point though where it's like this is just getting ridiculous. You know, I'm holding 40 kilograms in one hand and I can do sets of 20 or something. That's when I would definitely recommend, like you need to distribute that weight between both hands up the weight and just really focus on doing that Bulgarian movement pattern. And then once you get to the point, like you said, where you're like, I have 40 kilograms per hand. This is almost getting impractical. And it might get to the point as well where like your grip strength could be giving out and that could be the limiting factor. So then it might be the case that, okay, maybe I should transfer over to something like the Smith machine for my Bulgarians. But I think it's like taking those steps with the Mm. Bulgarians. Yeah, it's natural progression and how you execute the movement. Mm, Yeah, it's pretty cool. I remember like back when we were doing in lockdown, I remember starting with off like 15 kilograms in one hand and my little baby quads, like that was a real challenge for me. And like that was me stabilizing with the other hand as well. But then I just stayed persistent with it every single session, every single week. And then I was able to about just over a year later have 36 kilograms in each hand. So yeah, just that natural progression. But I'd personally say like, if you can get past that point 
I would recommend someone probably just tries to initially start doing a Bulgarian normally with the weight evenly distributed on both sides and just doing that movement pattern like that. I would probably only go to the weight in your hand first, stabilizing yourself, if like your stability was really, really, really off. Mm. Yeah, I don't think, I don't have too much of a firm stance on it. I think doing it with one hand is, is viable as long as you're pushing yourself hard enough. I think with Bulgarians, it's very easy to underestimate just because even if you do a bodyweight Bulgarian, it's still difficult. Mm. So like, it's important to know that you can push yourself adequately on a Bulgarian because mm. often they might use like one five kilo dumbbell in their hand, which is that going to do anything? Mm. Probably not. It's kind of like using micro loading to load a leg press. Like would you increase your leg press by 1.25 kilos? <laughs> Probably not. Yeah. You just kind of got to fall in love with how uncomfortable they are mm. and uh, just push past that pain. And yeah, you're absolutely right. I think that a lot of people really do hold themselves back with that movement because it is just, it's very demanding from you. It, it's, it is very tough, but mm. man, once you can actually go heavy on that movement with like good execution, it'll take your lower body development to a whole nother level. Like, I feel like you can tell the difference between someone's glutes if they just do hip thrusts or if they do Bulgarians and they hip thrust or some sort of lunge movement pattern with like full range of motion lunges. It just does something to the glutes. Well, yeah, it definitely does something, that's for sure. <laughs> something that you can certainly see. <laughs> mm. And it, it just is one of those notorious exercises where 99% of people do not enjoy it. It's mm -hmm. a necessary pain to do. Yeah, it's a love-hate, but uh, certainly if you do them and you progress with them, definitely you, you are rewarded in the end. <laughs> Literally, in the rear end. <laughs> but we'll end this episode, as per usual, with something that we learned this week, and I'm happy to start this one. Okay, what do you learn? Well, I learned that we ran out of creatine, unfortunately, and we've been looking for more creatine. And I think the creatine prices have gone up. Maybe there's like a worldwide shortage of creatine, but like bulk nutrients, it's now like $37 or something mm. for a kilo. I think it used to be cheaper than VPA and VPA is $27. Mm. And so obviously we would buy from VPA, but VPA is sold out. So mm. hence, that's why I think the prices must be rising. But yeah, VPA is now the cheapest by far, I think, for, for creatine. Yeah, like $27 a kilogram yeah. if they were in stock. Yeah, well, I guess on that note, if you're paying 50 bucks a kilo for creatine, like if you buy it from a supplement store, and like if you want to support that supplement store and just buy whatever for the sake of it to give them money, then go for it. But creatine should be the cheapest supplement. Mm. Like there's no need to pay $50, $60 for a tub of creatine. You're just uh, throwing money away. Yeah, it should be very cheap. It should be cheap, uh, but it's very effective stuff for sure. Mm. Perhaps just like a distribution issue or something like that. Yeah, beyond us. Yes, it is beyond us. <laughs> Anyway, what did you learn, Tiara? Mm, okay, well, this past week, I learned something interesting about pre-workout nutrition. So obviously, I don't want to spend a long time on this, so I'm just going to sum it up and say that, interestingly, it might not actually be the macronutrient composition of a pre-workout meal that matters the most, particularly if you're training first thing in the morning fasted, but more so whether or not the meal actually satiates you. So mass which is the monthly application in strength sport in their most recent review they actually spoke about this study where they had two groups of participants and 
pre-workout after a period of fasting for like 10 to 13 hours, they both consumed a meal. Now this meal, it did have the same caloric value and macronutrient value. It was like one group drank this orange drink with calories in it, obviously. The other group had the exact same orange drink, but what they did was they stirred in some xanthan gum into it and they had to eat it with a spoon. And then about an hour and a half later, they did the training program. They did like some squats and some bench press, and then they actually looked at their results. And what they concluded from that is that it's not necessarily the calories or the macronutrients that you consume pre-workout, but it's whether or not you actually feel satiated during the workout itself. And the group that actually consumed this meal with the xanthan gum in it, because they probably had more of that food still in their stomach and a slower rate of gastric emptying, they actually outperformed the group that just drank liquid calories, which is really interesting. Mm. And it's very interesting. Yeah, because this previous group of researchers, their initial study was actually looking at does the calorie content of a meal matter? So they had another two groups of participants. One ate like a calorically filled jelly, and then the other one ate like a diet jelly sort of thing. And then they both went and did a workout. They both basically had the same performance because they were probably both satiated from the meal. So very interesting because we get asked the question a lot like, what's the perfect pre-workout nutrition? Mm. And usually you'd think like, okay, you probably want something with a little bit of carbohydrates in it so it can spike your blood glucose levels. You probably don't want too much fiber so you don't want a lot of gastrointestinal distress or feel like you're bloated probably want a little bit of protein, maybe a little bit of dietary fat. But I think the main thing is that as long as you eat something that satiates you pre-workout, doesn't have you feeling hungry during your workout so that you can be solely focused on the workout itself, and then you back that up with really good post-workout nutrition, maybe that's what matters most. Yeah, it's definitely a very insightful piece of research. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So if you're training in the morning, just make sure that you aren't hungry during your workout. Mm. Well, what if you're dieting? Well, just suck it up. <laughs> just be strategic with your pre-workout and try to at least be somewhat satiated. Mm. Even when you're dieting, yes, like you always have that overhanging feeling of, yeah, I could eat. But after a meal, you usually feel somewhat satiated. Yep. If you're strategic with what you've eaten. Mm. Yeah, well, I think even people who do train early, it doesn't mean they suddenly have to contain calorie-free things. Mm. Like they can still... Do what they're currently doing and i think nutrition isn't just to make you satiated nutrition is to optimize your recovery and your protein synthesis after the workout as mm -hmm. well so nutrition isn't just to optimize performances for what happens after performance as well mm -hmm. yeah, yeah. kind of like that very first question we'd answered <laughs> exactly it's yeah. about it's about everything everything that you do contributes mm -hmm. great well guys thank you so much for tuning into this episode if you did enjoy it please remember to take a screenshot post it to your Instagram stories, tag Jack, tag myself, tag TBD, and we'll catch you next week.